Welcome to the Tennis with an Accent podcast presented by Red Circle. I am Matt Zemek and I'm with Sakib Ali. I want to make a special introduction on behalf of Sakib and our podcast here at Tennis with an Accent. Uh, if you've been following us on Twitter, you know that we've been trying to find a sponsor for this podcast. And we don't have a long-term sponsor, but we do have a sponsor for this episode. So Sakib and I are really pleased and proud uh, to announce a, a one-episode sponsorship. We'll see where it goes in the future, but for this episode, we do have a sponsor. It is Stats Insider at statsinsider.com.au. So that's based in Australia, and they have a Twitter handle at Stats Insider, uh, where you can follow their French Open Simulator. That is their main thing, certainly during this tournament at Roland Garros. Uh, it's a it's a website where you can explore 10,000 different possible simulations, 10,000 different results for your favorite tennis players, and you can learn what the data is behind these simulations. So in this podcast, as part of this sponsorship, we do want to give Stats Insider a return on its, its investment. Uh, we are going to have Greg Buten, the chief data analyst for Stats Insider, to explain uh, this data-driven model as part of the tennis analytics package that Stats Insider offers. So we're really happy to have Stats Insider sponsoring this episode. And what that also means for people who are listening to us, uh, we're going to have some advertisements. So that's going to be part of the show. And we're also going to have that short segment with Greg. And then, of course, as the featured item, yes, we're going to have a t conversation about Roland Garros. And that's going to be between Sakib and myself. Uh, on the heels of Sakib's terrific podcast with Darren Cahill last week. So that's what's coming up, uh, a segment with Stats Insider, some advertisements, and the featured item, Sakib and myself, talking tennis at Roland Garros. The official tennis world rankings can only tell us so much, which is why the predictive analytics and data experts from Australia, Stats Insider, custom-built their own tennis world ranking system separate and independent of the official ranks, filterable by surface. We at Stats Insider think they're better than the official rankings, and here's why. The official rankings take into account the player's basic wins and losses and how far they advance in each tournament, with larger tournaments worth more ranking points. Here's where the Stats Insider Tennis World Rankings are different. The Stats Insider World Rankings aren't just based on how many matches a player has won or lost. Stats Insider's rankings also account for who each a player's opponent was in those matches, plus the surface the match was played on to determine how many points are allocated to or removed from the player's ranking. This allows players who defeat a higher-ranked opponent to be allocated a higher point total than had they beaten someone lower in the rankings. You can also filter the Stats Insider rankings page by court type, allowing a better understanding of which players perform well on the different surfaces. For example, during the first week of the French Open, the WTA has Petra Martic ranked 31 in the world. Stats Insider has her ranked 25th, but number five on clay, behind only Kiki Bertens, Simona Halep, Serena Williams, and Petra Kvitova. Check out the Stats Insider Tennis World Rankings at statsinsider.com.au and click Tennis 
to access all of Stats Insider's tennis projection tools absolutely free. That's statsinsider.com.au. And now something very special on the Tennis with an Accent podcast here at Red Circle. Uh, we are uh, trying out a relationship, and it's a relationship with a, uh, a sponsor for this particular episode. We're very proud and pleased to welcome Stats Insider, based in Australia, and uh, they run a simulator uh, on Roland Garros and other tennis tournaments, and they do uh, analytics on various other sports, including the NBA, for instance, uh, with the NBA Finals starting this week between the Golden State Warriors and Toronto Raptors. Uh, various sports covered by Stats Insider. And uh, here to explain a little bit more about Stats Insider, what it does and how it works uh, for our listening audience, is Greg Butin, who is the Chief Data Analyst for Stats Insider. Greg, welcome to Tennis with an Accent, and thanks for uh, sponsoring us for this episode. No worries, guys. Thanks for having me on. I'm really, really looking forward to it. Yeah, it's a real treat, and we, we thank you for, uh, for coming to us and wanting to explain your product. And without further ado, that's really what uh, this segment is for, for you to introduce your product to our listeners uh, tell the story of Stats Insider uh, from your vantage point, knowing it as you do. Uh, tell us what it's all about. Yeah, so at Stats Insider, we um, try and use data-driven models to predict sporting outcomes. Um, it's We try and be as complicated as we can be. We don't leave anything, any stone unturned. We do a range of different sports from, yeah, as you mentioned, the NBA to tennis to local sports in Australia, such as cricket and AFL and rugby. We're really expanding our sports all the time. And our tennis product is something that we spend a lot of time on just because of the amount of tennis there is in the world. Um, both the women's tour and the men's tour, they feel like they happen almost every day. We do every ATP event, every WTA event, every Open. Um, and we've built lots of different products to help people get a better idea of the probabilities of each player playing and who should win the tournament. So, yeah, I guess with the French Open, we really wanted to get our name out there and have a chat to you guys. You guys are the tennis experts, so we thought no better place to start. Yeah, so just take us a little, walk us through more how uh, the your data-driven models work and how they are meant to provide clarity and insights into, you know, all of these results, all of the, 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 the different shifts in a sports landscape and what kinds of details you're looking at when you make your computations and how this can be of benefit uh, to people who are interested in visiting uh, your website at statsinsider.com.au. Yeah, well, every sport's different when you're trying to model sport, especially tennis, um, mostly because it's a really unique sport in that it's played over several different surfaces. So trying to model tennis is something that, you know, we sort of pride ourselves on and the model that we've built, we think it's, we think it's one of our better models just because of the amount of effort, the amount of data we've got for tennis. Um, I'll try and walk you through the process of how we've looked at it. And I think, I think tennis lovers would want to know how you go about predicting a tennis match between two different players. Um, so I'll try and walk you through that first, if you guys don't mind. Absolutely. 
Right. So one of the first things we did is we literally built a, um, a tennis simulator, sort of like a computer game in many ways, ball by ball, serve by serve, um, three sets, five sets, and how that plays out. And each time that we ran the simulation, it would come up with a different result. From there, what we needed to do was inputs. We really needed to figure out what sort of serve percentage a player would have. Um, and to get to those sorts of numbers, we, we need to go back and look at the results of that player, who they've played, what surface they did it on, how recently they did it, and just the natural variance of um, tennis because we know that even weather conditions, whether it be indoor or outdoor, can affect that. So just from that first simulator that we built, um, we, had to we had to go on further and figure out what what, what is Nadal likely to do on clay compared to hardcore? And as we know, Rafa is the most dominant clay player maybe of all time. So what sort of things do we look at when Nadal has to play someone who's probably more of a hardcore specialist, say a big server? So just analysing those sorts of things, we can build a simulator and um, we can build different universes that people can play with on the website or see who goes through the French Open or who who's likely to come from nowhere and finish in the quarterfinals. So those sorts of things we've, um, we really pride ourselves on here and we think we've got a really cool product. Hey, hey Greg, this is Saqib. I think just to build on what you said to understand fully, now can you apply certain filters when you say if you're building a simulator on Nadal and you're dissecting it by big servers or not? So, And the second question is, can the simulator has time filters? You want only data going back to six months or maybe two years? Or how does that work? Yeah. So, I mean, if you've got a really big server, so it's very obvious to find the really big servers in the game, we know that they're probably going to be better on hard court and grass, um, maybe not so good on clay. So when we talk about filters, we really want to have a look at each individual player's strengths and weaknesses and try and extrapolate that to different, uh, different surfaces. So for someone like Nadal, who's such a great returner, he's going to obviously have a better return rate against a really big server on clay. But on hard court or grass, he's going to be his return is less important. That's not to say he's not a good chance. We've got him ranked number two in the world. So he's he is still a very good chance on hard court. But his strength really lies in clay because he's a returner. So that is how we can do the filters. And we can we can do any hypotheticals from there if we wanted to. Um, and what was your second question, sorry? Uh, can we f uh, set filters like uh, for time intervals, uh, retrieve data, say, for six oh, months or more? Yeah, so we, we've got data going back about three years, um, and that includes ITF tournaments as well. Um, we've got about 300,000 games on, on in our database, which will, have lots, which will have service and return records of each player. So we look at about three or four years. Um, one of the big problems over that period, to give you an example, is Serena Williams and how she went on maternity leave, and then now how she doesn't play too many tournaments. Even leading up to this French Open, she's been a hard one to gauge. But we do have a lot of data from her before that. Um, it is less important the further you go back, um, but it is certainly it is certainly there, and we, we take all of that into account. Okay, so, thanks. Greg, uh, when, when you were... When you were formulating this model, uh, what was the process of, you know, input, you know, from the various sources you consulted and the various discussions that you had? What was the collaborative uh, process 
that that formulated the model because and that that might help listeners uh, understand all the ways in which you're coming from. I mean, it, it, this won't be a complete explanation of everything, you know, but yeah. but it, but in, just in terms of providing like a foundational sense of where this model came from. Yeah. So I so I did a I did a lot of study for tennis to figure out in what ways you could build a model. And I think the foundation of the model really relies on if a player is serving at X amount and another player is returning at X amount, then we should be able to simulate their game. And we can simulate that game 10,000 times. And obviously the players are going to win 70% and 30% and that's going to go either way. But trying to figure out the serve percentage is, I think, is the key to um, making tennis models. And that is the real basis of the model. And we use a lot of machine learning to, from that data to figure out which which players will serve at which percentage on which surface. So it has been a complicated process, but the, if you really want to get it down to one variable, if we can find what, a, what an expected service percentage would be, we can go a long way to predicting their chances of winning a match or winning an entire tournament. Well, Sakib, do you have any other questions? I think this is a good start uh, to understand uh, what you know Greg and team are doing. So it's kind of an exciting prospect as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. So Greg, uh, we want to thank you for joining us, and uh, we uh, want to encourage our listeners uh, to go to statsinsider.com.au uh, to play around with the website. I mean, that's what it's there for, and to look at. They're simulators, and then you can uh, follow Stats Insider on Twitter at Stats Insider. That is the Twitter handle, and we look forward to uh, interacting on social media and in other formats uh, as Tennis with an Accent works with Stats Insider during this first week of Roland Garros. So, Greg, thank you very much for joining us today. Oh, thank you very much, guys. absolutely loved it, and um, I love your work. Thank you. There are a ton of factors which make the French Open one of the most anticipated events on the tennis calendar. With a bumper crop of fresh faces strengthening the ATP Tour contenders list, coupled with the fact that the WTA circuit is as unpredictable as ever, it's going to be very difficult to pick the winner of this year's French Open. Enter Stats Insider's free French Open simulator. The Australian-made tournament simulator is the best way to explore the underlying data that powers Stats Insider's French Open match and tournament predictions, providing hours of entertainment while you try to work your way through the up to 10,000 different tournament journeys. Simply select the player whose French Open journey you want to follow, then sit back and watch the simulator do its thing. The entire French Open will simulate match by match, updating every 24 hours with real-life, real-time results. Unhappy with the result or want to see a different variation? Just run the simulator again and you'll have a different outcome. Each time you click Simulate, the simulator processes one single possible tournament outcome from our total current run of possible outcomes of the French Open. Remember, there are 10,000 possibilities total. So, unless you have something hot on the stove or have an important presentation to prepare for, you should try messing around with the different contenders and look at all the different possible ways 
the French Open could play out. Find the French Open simulator at statsinsider.com.au and click tennis to access all of Stats Insider's tennis projection tools absolutely free. That's statsinsider.com.au. Welcome to the Tennis with an Accent podcast. I am Matt Zemek. I'm joined by Sakib Ali, fresh off his triumphant interview of Darren Cahill, the proudest and most significant moment in the relatively young history of the Tennis with an Accent podcast. Sakib founded it in 2017. Uh, I came aboard last year in 2018, and we really have, have reached the heights. Uh, and we, we want to thank Sakib and I Darren Cahill, not just for giving up his time and being willing to participate in, in a lengthy podcast, but also for giving such great and generous answers. You know, I've spent about 20 years in the sports industry, sports content industry, uh, you know, writing about athletes and coaches and commentators. And one thing you learn uh, when being around uh, high-profile sports figures is that you know, sometimes they will give the stock boilerplate generic answer. They'll offer very short responses. And even though you're excited to talk to somebody famous from the world of sports, they don't really give the kinds of answers that leave you amazed or in, much more informed than you were before the interview. But Darren Kale gave the most generous, detailed, expansive answers possible. And so he wasn't just generous with his time. He was generous with his answers, and, and that just uh, shows the kind of person Darren Cahill is, and that's why it was such a privilege for Tennis with an Accent to have him on the podcast. It's why I'm also so proud of Sakib uh, for doing such a great job in that interview and letting Darren Cahill tell the story. So that's our preamble, and so let's get right into Roland Garros. It's underway, and Sakib, you, you love talking about Alexander Zverev. He won in Geneva. Assess where you think Zverev's game stands and what you're looking for from him in this first week at uh, the French Open in Paris. Uh, Matt, so it's, uh, I think it's a great narrative to follow Zverev because of uh, the Lendl you know, collaboration going back to last year's US Open and you and I have spoken at length about him. You've written at length uh, you know, so many articles and uh, everybody's discussed and he was in one of my top four going into the clay season and then Federer played some solid tennis. Tsitsipas, you know, became the name that eclipsed Zverev from many lists. But uh, sometimes, in, in my opinion, in my humble opinion, I think uh, Zverev is someone who's been carrying a lot of pressure on, you know, because of his achievements. And uh, everybody included was wait, waiting for him to make the breakthrough. And now, I think uh, with Tsitsipas' rise and some of the other juniors coming in, Zverev's levels uh, kind of not very consistent of late. I think this Geneva title looked like a desperate entry last minute just to go there and get some matches. He ended up winning a very thrilling final against Chile's Nicolas Jari, which was, I think, two and a half hour final, spanned over six hours due to rain. And uh, that was an ugly match. I was talking to a friend, and I think this will do him you know, a lot of confidence because he didn't play freely. He had patches when he played good, and then he had patches when... He wasn't in the match, and uh, that happens with many players when they're struggling with form. And now uh, he's starting his campaign by the time this podcast is released. Uh, I think he just uh, became more of an outside contender, even by his standards. So 
I don't know. I think this can serve him well. I mean, of course, he has to go out there and win a couple of matches and then be in the conversation. He's in the tricky section where I think he can play Fonini uh, if he reaches the round of 16 and then uh, he can uh, play Novak Djokovic. And uh, with the current form, Del Potro and Tsitsipas, according to you, were the tough tough outs as far as the top eight quarterfinal matchups go. But I think Sasha Zverev, again, we are going way too ahead in the second week. Uh, he's someone who is also not shy playing against Federer and Djokovic, you know, against Nadal, he has yet to win, but he, he shows up for these matches. And uh, maybe, you know, when everybody's kind of not written him off, but just not talking enough about him, I, I have a feeling, you know, like I'm just writing a you know, hot hand here, just making some uh, lucky predictions in the bracketology contest. Uh, I think watch out for him if he gets a couple of wins here. I think this could be some momentum that he was lacking. That's, that's, that's what I think. Well, you know, so it, at, with the French Open still just getting started in its first week, as you listen to this podcast, it, it's either going to be during the first round or possibly the second round as well on Wednesday and Thursday. As you listen to this podcast, you know, it's still a good time to provide expectations uh, for various players at Roland Garros. And so my expectations for Zverev are very low. And so that it, it really is uh, fascinating in that, you know, a year ago, uh, he made his first and still only major quarterfinal at Roland Garros. And then, of course, he thrashed Roger Federer uh, and, and Novak Djokovic at the ATP finals in London. So entering 2019, the natural expectation entering this year, this season, was for Zverev to start making major semifinals, maybe a final, but at least get to that semifinal round. And yet here we are in Roland Garros. To me, if he makes the quarterfinals, it's a very successful tournament. So in January, if you had told me Zverev was going to make the Roland Garros quarterfinals, I would have said, well, that's going to be kind of a disappointment. But as we arrive at the tournament here at the very end of May, uh, if he made the quarterfinals and lost to Djokovic in straight sets even, it would still be a very good tournament because it will have reset uh, his year. It will have gotten him back to a stage where he expects to be, and it would really change the conversation, you know, in terms of how he's viewed. So it's just weird how sports works. Uh, a quarterfinal in Paris would not have been viewed as much of anything significant for Zverev in November, December, January, but here we are in late May. It would be a very big deal if he can accomplish it. So, um, it, you know, building off Zverev, let's actually swing to uh, another one of the players in his cohort, and that's Stefanos Tsitsipas. Uh, you know, he has stacked together the quality results that Alexander Zverev had last year during the clay season. You know, Zverev's, Zverev achieved richly in the clay season in 2018 and then came to Paris with a lot of expectations, and Tsitsipas has carved out a relatively similar journey on clay in 2019. So Sakib, uh, as someone who has talked to Tsitsipas on your podcast in, in the past, uh, obviously I know you're, you're very fond of his game as well as Zverev's. Um, how would you assess Tsitsipas and where would you set your expectations for Tsitsipas at this Roland Garros tournament? Uh, Matt, I think it's... Uh... It's pretty obvious. Uh, Sitsipas, like many European players, is so so much at home on clay. It's all about the movement and how he can slide into the shot and uh, how comfortable he is. 
you know, rallying from, you know, so far back from the baseline, behind the baseline, then come to the net. You know, he's, he's kind of a unique package. Uh, he's playing somewhat of throwback tennis, you know, players who grew up maybe in the late 80s and the early 90s, but now here we are. Uh, am I impressed? Oh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm very impressed. When I spoke to him a long time ago, I've said it, uh, I had high hopes from him, but this is just like such a, uh, you know, this is just such a quick rise to the top. He's 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 very close to being a favorite. If someone fl- slips, say from Nadal or Djokovic, you know, he's he's right up there with Dominic team. You know, and you know, and Federer, Federer, if he's still around, these are a few guys who can, you know, who are in the just second tier below the top two. And uh, he started pretty impressive against the German martyr, uh, uh in his first match on Sunday, where he played a third set uh, tiebreak and he was r- victorious in straight sets. Uh, the draw is kind of kind. He took a week off. He plays a lot of tennis. There's no secret. But he's someone who who gets better by you know you know. It seems like he's winded on the court. Maybe he's exhausted. But he has a lot of stamina. And then he did play deep three weeks in a row, from uh, Estoril and then uh, Madrid and and Rome. So uh, I don't know. I mean I, I'm 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 picking him to go to the semis, and it's not a surprise. Uh, of course, you know, if Federer finds his game and they play in the quarters and Federer hasn't spent too much energy, it can be a different result. But I'm picking Sitsipa as a slight favorite uh, right now to come through the section. Of course, a lot of tennis has to be played. Uh, we may be talking a different game by the time the next podcast is released, which will be just before the quarterfinals on the men's side. But right now, I think uh, uh, Philip Crano, which is another guy who can give Sitsipas, you know, maybe some trouble. Uh, he can play on clay. He was uh, victorious over Francis Tiafo, but then there's a Spaniard, Carbes Biana. So, of course, a lot of matches have to be played. But uh, just to answer your question, I think Sitsipas uh, definitely is a very safe pick, in my opinion, and uh, for, for, for at least making the last eight and then maybe even the last four. Well, you know, just to make a brief remark on Sitsipas from my end, I, I think it's amazing when you look at that quarter of the Roland Garros men's draw with Sitsipas and Federer there as the highest seeds uh, that, you know, the, the two, the two men in that, the highest seeded men in that quarter, a 37 year old man who hasn't played at Roland Garros in four years. And then a 20 year old who, you know, at this time last year was just beginning to gain meaningful experience at this level of tennis, these are the two favorites to make a semifinal. And, you know, if, if you read our website, tennisaccent.com, and you read our men's uh, predictions, you know, most people have, most of the people on our panel, our list of tennis with an accent contributors who are going to help us with our written coverage of Roland Garros, most of them have Federer in the semifinals. Uh, and, if, and if not the semifinals, at least the quarterfinals. And if and if Federer is not the guy who makes the semis from that quarter of the draw, it's Sitsipas. So the the fact that Sitsipas has already gained so much estimation, and and rightly, I'm, I'm, I'm I should clarify that this is legitimate earned uh, status based on all of his achievements. The fact that Sitsipas is here at 20, and, and many people think that he's uh, a safe pick to make the quarters. And a, and a very decent pick to make the semis. I mean, that right there is testament to how much he has grown in a relatively short period of time. It also shows how much his career is ahead of schedule at this point. So that that those are my main insights uh, with Sitsipas at this point. 
No, very well said, and uh, we'll, we shall see how this unfolds when we talk again in a week's time. But Matt, I want to take your time on this podcast uh, about a match that was played today, so we can always talk about a match that's happened, because you know that's more like a review or a post-mortem. So I understand Tommy Paul played a very uh, competitive uh, you know, first three sets, and he was 4-0 up, and then I know you tweeted something, and we had a little DM chat about it. So I, I'm going to give my two cents and then maybe see if we are in the same ballpark. And you're right, maybe you know you compared with NBA because if you're not in certain situations, experience is a great you know way to learn these things. And uh, I, I get it, people uh, players get tight, but at the same time, I'm also seeing through the prism of Dominic Team. He's the guy who's a legit top three favorite in some minds. He's maybe you know the only guy who can beat either Djokovic or Nadal or even both. It's a long shot, but he's he's the only guy according to many tennis experts, and he's earned that. So I was just thinking, you know, after three consistent years at Roland Garros where he's fallen to Nadal and, uh, and, and Djokovic, uh, this, this, is, this is a guy who, you know, in that 4-0 lead, he, he could have, you know, played maybe some risky shots and maybe caved in. And uh, granted, uh, he needed, in your words, uh, Tommy Paul to maybe f- fold for a point or so, but I still think you have to give a lot of credit, I think, in my opinion, to Dominic Team for turning the tide from the 4-0 deficit to go and win the tiebreak. Uh, and definitely we have to acknowledge the caveat that Tommy Paul is very much a, a newbie to these situations and these majors and best of five and all that. But I think, you know, Dominic team, uh, nothing was given to him. I think he, he kind of orchestrated the turnaround, in my opinion. Well, it's a fair point. And, you know, to be very specific, let's take people through that tiebreaker if they weren't able to see it on television. Uh, I think the point where the the notion that Dominic team really took control of that uh, breaker, it gains relevance at 4-0 and 4-1. Uh, you know, on those two points, team was able to hit outright winners. Uh, and on the 4-1 point, that was a Tommy Paul service point. Paul hit his first serve. Uh, he landed his first serve in. Uh, team uh, hit a backhand cross court. Paul had the open court down the line into the deuce corner, but he went back cross court team was able to reset the point. And then after resetting the point, uh, he had a brilliant uh, down the line forehand, which smacked the sideline to get to four, two. So the, the thing that I give team credit for is that down Oh four in that tiebreaker in the third set tied one set apiece. you know, he was able to win those next two points to get it to four, two. And that made Paul, sweat that made Paul worry about the scoreboard. If team had been listless and ineffective on those two points at 4-0, uh, you know, then Paul gets a 5-1 or maybe even a six love lead. And then he can cruise to that third set breaker. Uh, and then he starts the fourth set, you know, f- feeling fully confident that he can win that match and pull the upset in four sets. So team by playing those two points well at 4-0 and 4-1, Yes, that was a significant change in the tenor of that tiebreaker. However, when we get to 4-2, Paul made routine errors uh, on a a backhand at 4-2 into the middle of the net. And then at 4-3, he got a short ball, a ball that landed just past the service line. He was able to step inside the court, could have had, had his choice of target in terms of where to hit the ball. And he hit a forehand to the ad corner, which was about two to three feet long. 
And that is the kind of shot that Tommy Paul in that match at that time, he had not missed that kind of shot and he had made, he had not made that large an error in the previous 15 to 20 minutes of real time. So for people who might be skeptical of saying that, Oh, you know, Paul really flinched in that moment. I think when, when a player is in a zone for 15, 20, 25 minutes, you know, an appreciably expanded length of time. And then he commits an error that he had not committed in those previous 20 to 25 minutes. To me, that is precisely what it means to flinch in the heat of scoreboard competition. So I really think that at 4-2, after team, to his credit, made the scoreboard closer, then at 4-2 and 4-3, and then later at 4-all, um, and then also at 6-5 at on set point, you saw some really tight, shaky errors from Paul, the, er the errors that he had not been making late in that third set. So that, that, that's why I say that even though team deserves credit for fighting and not accepting defeat late in that third set, which is to his great credit, ultimately it was still a tiebreaker that Tommy Paul lost more than Dominic Team won. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty encyclopedic of you, and I'll not try to push it because you, you, know, you kind of uh, remember how each play happened, but I still think two plots can be true, in my opinion, at the same time, both for fighting their own demons and, you know, Paul, maybe for lack of experience, gave in. But at the same time, team had a lot more to lose. So let me ask you a different question because you've covered sports for so long. You think if Dominic team, again, goes and does something special, like, say, another final or even win this whole thing, you think this tiebreak is something, you know, that propelled him to? Uh, is that the kind of conversation we'll be having two, two weeks from now? Very hypothetical, but Absolutely. at the same time, couldn't resist. Absolutely. You know, so team might play Novak Djokovic in the semifinals. And let's remember... One of the hidden matches, a first round match, no less, that propelled Novak Djokovic's rise to superstardom. I mean, Djokovic was already a star and he was already a globally known player in September of 2010. He already had a major championship. He had already shown that he was a top three player behind Federer and Nadal. But when he came to that 2010 U.S. Open and he played Victor Troike in the first round, he was down two sets to one. He was down a break in the fourth set. If he, does, if he doesn't make that comeback in five sets in that match, he doesn't get to save multiple match points in the semis to beat Federer. He doesn't get a date with Nadal in the final. And Nadal won that match in four, but Djokovic played really, really well. It was arguably his best performance at a major tournament since he won the Australian Open in 2008. So if Djokovic had not used that first round to escape against Troike, uh, you know, his rise to an elite level in late 2010, and especially in his dominant 2011 season, might never have happened. You know, that, that takeoff, that launching toward superstardom and toward iconic status in the history of tennis to the point where today he could win a second Novak slam in the span of three years. And he could possibly become the first man ever to beat Rafael Nadal in a Roland Garros final. None of that might have ha would have happened uh, if he had not gotten past Troiki in the first round of the U S open in 2010. So to bring that back to Dominic team, yes, if he makes the final, if he, if he beats Djokovic in a possible semifinal, uh, you know, and he and he cements himself 
as clearly, you know, the new number four player after the big three, he's definitely going to look back on that escape from Tommy Paul as a moment when the total trajectory of his 2019 Roland Garros tournament turned around for the better. And just to add, I mean, a lot of people already know this, but I think Dominic team has a fully full-fledged new team with Nicholas Masui all, already had, uh, I think, traveling him with him since Indian Wells. He also has a uh, his compatriot, uh, Gerald Melzer, you know, who he played doubles with in Rome, is also the second coach. And then I think he's finally cut ties with Gunter Bresnik, who's now just working at his academy and maybe Ernest Gulbis' coach. So, yeah, this is new waters for Dominic team. And uh, let's see, you know, how this uh, Roland Garros unfolds for him. So let me just bring in your favorite topic and everybody's favorite topic, the best of five sets. We've had a few incredible matches. Shardy and uh, Edmund have been suspended due to darkness, which happens, you know, two, three times a fortnight at least. And this is kind of, uh, what's your opinion on that kind of a thing? You think they called it off at the right time at 5-all? Because one more long game could have been just 6-5 for the other guy. Or some people on Twitter, uh, some very knowledgeable folks are saying that it should at least be allowed to go at 6-all. What's your take on something like this? You know, I think the main thing is that if, if, if one of the players you know, is done and, and can't really see the ball and wants to call it a night, that's enough for me. I think that if both players want to continue, then by all means, go on and continue because both athletes, the people most invested in the outcome of the competition, are, you know, want are on, are on the same page and want to continue. But if one of them says no, I think you should call it. And, you know, it, it is worth noting that since the French Open does not have a final set tiebreaker, you know, now the only one of the four majors to not have one, uh, you know, if the if if there was a final set tiebreaker in place at 6-6, I think you would have seen that match run to its conclusion. But because there was no tiebreaker, it was per- it was a perfectly sensible and, and I think obvious decision to call that match at five all. And adding to the same discussion, uh, I think two veteran Frenchmen kind of delighted the home crowds, and even Darren Cahill said, you know, they they won't have many representation uh, on either side uh, for the business end, but you know, the French locals, you know, with their flair and their, you know, their their panache will delight the home crowds in the first week, and that's exactly what Mahou and Herbe did. Uh, I think in back-to-back days, and and Shardy is not too far from doing uh, the same. He's even though a little you know younger than Mahu, but yeah, w- what a first few days for the French if Shardy's to pull it off tomorrow. I think the the main thing to glean from those French upsets, Mahu and also Air Bear, is that you can play serve and, and volley, attacking, slashing, aggressive tennis on clay. It, it is not a style of tennis. It has to be limited to Wimbledon grass or perhaps, you know, the fast hard courts of Cincinnati or Shanghai. You can play it anywhere. And I want to give credit to tennis with an accent contributor, Nick Nemiroff, who on an April 2018 podcast with you, Sakib, I remember him saying that net rushing on clay works because since the ball doesn't get through the court quite as quickly on a, on a red clay court, Compared to a fast hard court, you actually have more time to establish your presence at the net and, and apply pressure uh, on the on the man hitting the passing shot. So Mahu and Airbear both applied that tactic from Nick Nemiroff expertly uh, in the first round of Roland Garros. And and Airbear's win over the inform Medvedev was you know quite 
uh, quite a match because Erbe has made some inroads on the clay. He's, uh, for the longest time, he was being received by many folks like myself as just a double specialist. But he's worked on his game and, you know, the chip in charge and even rushing the net. He's had few decent results this year on clay. And this year, you know, he went the distance against Daniel Medvedev. So let me ask you this, uh, Matt. I don't know if you got a chance to watch that match. Uh, is Medvedev's fitness a concern for you? Because in Australia, he played a very physical match against Novak Djokovic. And today, uh, I didn't watch the match. I was just, you know, following the scoreboard because uh, I don't have uh, the multi-channel package. So if you did watch the match, are you uh, any, do you have any concerns regarding the Russians' uh, fitness if, when things go the distance? Uh, I really don't, and and the main reason I say that is because Air Bear does not play, you know, extremely physical matches. You know, there are certain kinds of players who play physical kinds of matches, but with Air Bear and and his particular style, that's not uh, an, an imposing kind of match to play physically. Because Air Bear tries to get to the net when he can; he doesn't stay bolted to the baseline. So this was more a matter of consistency and Medvedev finding or or in this case not finding the range on his shots uh so that this was was would not be cited as a as a representative case of a guy who is struggling with his fitness it's more about form it's more about consistency um you know people in france have said people with with some proximity to medvedev uh you know who have studied his game this is not me, it's not you, but some people in the business have called him Gilles Simon 2.0. And if you're Gilles Simon 2.0, you know, your, your, toler- your shot tolerance and your ability to work hard is considerable, but the variety in your game, that's what might be lacking. So I think it's more about finding good strategies and coping solutions. It's less about uh, the fitness at this point for Medvedev. Okay, so like we said, we just to be keeping honest uh, with our theme by the time this podcast at least is relevant for a week, what are some of the matches that you want to share with the listeners that are on your radar uh, that could happen and may not happen, but that could happen later in the week? What excites you on, on both sides of the tour? Is it a Cuevas a team matchup or is it a Federer-Berrettini matchup? By the way, you and I were the only two on the staff who picked Federer to lose in that match. So thoughts on some of the upcoming clashes? Well, you know, so uh, I think we need to pay some attention to the, the, the WTA side. And so there are possible matches between uh, Kristina Mladenovic of France and Karolina Pliskova. That's a possible third rounder. So that might that would be a very huge test for Pliskova, who's at the number two seed uh, and is trying to win her first major. That's going to be a highly compelling match if it happens. You could also have in the third round Alina Svitolina against Garbina Muguruza. Now, you know, Svitolina has been injured uh, and she also has never made a major semifinal. So this might not be the tournament for her. Nevertheless, she is a top 10 player. She did win the WTA finals. She has a lot of credentials. You know, she, she won two of the last three Rome titles. And then Muguruza, as much as she has struggled for an extended period of time, the French Open nevertheless is her best tournament, period. So Muguruza can always come alive in Paris. You know, she, Muguruza has a Stan Wawrinka-like tendency to be in hibernation for a long period of time, but then rise at the majors, Roland Garros, you know, being the foremost choice. So that could be a really high quality third round matchup. And then you also have down the track, uh, 
if you know if they happen, um, you have you could have Os- Nomi Osaka uh, against well Maria Sakari in the third round. You could have her against Ashley Barty uh, in the quarterfinals. So uh, a lot of enticing matchups on the WTA side, and we have to make note that with Petra Kvitova, uh, you know, pulling out of the tournament before playing her first match. Now Simona Halep's quarter of the draw goes wide open. And, you know, Kvitova was really the big obstacle in Halep's quarter. Now that's not there. So assuming that Halep is, is physically fit and, and fully ready on a, on a purely physical level for this tournament and all of its demands, you know, she, she definitely now uh, becomes the favorite. It, now it's a wide open tournament. The, the WTA is a place where anything can and, and usually does happen. But now with Kvitova pulling out, Halep definitely uh, gains another pronounced advantage at this tournament. Yeah, I think that's uh, quite a good roundup of what's uh, ahead on the women's side. And I would just uh, like to add a couple on the men's side that I think uh, at least uh, are something I'm looking forward to. Uh, Pablo Cuevas is back in the scheme of things after winning a challenge tournament and I believe reaching a 250 final. And uh, I think he can play Dominic team again. That could be a clash of backhands in the round of 32. And then uh, there's uh, obviously a potential uh, second-week clash between Fonini and Zverev. That's, uh, that's mouth-watering, considering I think Fonini got the better of the German and Monte Carlo. And then uh, Federer Berrettini. Uh, I'm leaning towards Federer. I'm cheating now. I'm kind of... Uh, Matt, are you still sticking to your pick uh, uh, as Berrettini going far? Because I'm, you know, even though I made... The pick uh, on the on the staff uh, on the staff sheet that we posted on the tennis with an accent side. I'm thinking uh, Federer may prevail. Well, you know Federer should be favored, of course, and I would expect Federer to win. But it's in the nature of an upset, you know, to think that a surprise is going to occur. One variable, and this is something that Darren Cahill talked about on last week's show. If the conditions are heavy and uh, damp then that's going to make it very hard for Federer to hit through the court. And so, you know, a lot of people last week on my timeline, my Twitter timeline, were tweeting about how soggy the forecast was going to be. So that's part of the reason why I had uh, Berrettini over Federer. Obviously, if the if the forecast doesn't pan out and it's a more sunshiny, hot, warm day and the ball is is penetrating the court a little bit more, that's obviously to Federer's advantage. So Weather conditions are always a variable to include, but after one round, I'm not going to renege on a, on a big upset prediction I made before the tournament. These are the kinds of things you live with, and we will find out soon enough if that pick was really, really stupid or not. No, I mean, that's good. You're sticking to your, your gut, your belief, and uh, I'm the one who's kind of uh, having cold feet here. But anyway, so I think we covered quite a lot, and uh, this is... Uh, a week where a major is being played so the idea is for everyone to just you know watch matches because the day is getting shorter because everybody you know in different time zones trying to watch a lot of tennis so we'll try to keep this podcast you know very short any parting thoughts Matt before we wrap this episode I just want to say that you know we're really happy to be with our new partners at Red Circle whom you can follow on Twitter at Get Red Circle and you can also listen to this podcast on Stitcher and at Apple Podcasts, and we have new RSS feeds, the one from our previous company, Radio Influence. Those RSS feeds are no longer active, so you need to subscribe anew. You need to subscribe and rate the podcast again. That really helps us. uh, That that helps our RSS feeds at our new stops 
to get noticed so that we'll be able to have the same uh, volume of listenership that we had built with Radio Influence. So now at, at Red Circle, um, if you can subscribe again to this new RSS feed we have, and it's on my pinned tweet on my Twitter page at mzemic. That's where you can find uh, Red Circle, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. You go there, take five minutes to subscribe, rate, and review, and uh, that'll help us get noticed in our new partnership at Red Circle. All right, so I think uh, this is uh, this will wrap the show. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back with another show uh, next week. This is Sakib and Matt saying goodbye. Talk to you guys soon.